instant traps them in their own words. And now we're going to see that the, uh, the priests and the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees all come together and try and trap Jesus in, in his words um, to little to no success whatsoever. Um, I'll go ahead and read the passage here. Uh, Mark 12, verse 13 through 17 there. So, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but teach, truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing the, their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius. Let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So, absolutely fantastic passage. Um, and just goes to show the uh, phenomenal way in which Jesus handles every single adversary that comes to him uh, with just grace and dignity. Um, not even missing a beat is just incredible. Um, we see here that they sent the Pharisees and the Herodians um, those folks, we, we heard about them, them earlier that they were plotting uh, because of the things that Jesus said in verse... See, this is why you write stuff down. Um, anyway, basically said they got together, um, and at that point onward, they were like, we're going to try and trap Jesus. We're going to have to find a way to kill him because we cannot have this guy running around. Um, the Pharisees, of course, had their, and we're all familiar with their, their extra-biblical rules that they had. They had the law, they had the prophets, and they wanted to further clarify these things and make things not more difficult necessarily, but they wanted to make things clearer, and in doing so, they added a whole pile of extra laws about washings and, and what the things you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. Um, and these things, extra-biblical things, are the things they often fought Jesus on, putting them at odds with him. Um, we have, even just in the book of Mark, I, I saw like six different instances of Jesus' interactions with the Jewish leaders uh, fighting about things like uh, Jesus eating with tax collectors in Mark 2.15, um, on Sabbath regulations when the disciples were out on the field and they were plucking heads of grain so they could eat the, the grain from them uh, back in Mark 2.23-28, um, hand washings in Mark 7, 1 through 13, uh, things you should do. Um, assigned uh, signs from heaven on what authority he's doing these things in Mark uh, 8, 11 through 13. Um, they tried to quiz him on divorce, uh, trying to trap him in Mark 10, 1 through 12. Um, and then, of course, right before this in, with Jesus' authority, on what authority are you doing these things? And Jesus' quick and, and sharp retort that, makes it so that they had nothing else to, to argue. They, he wasn't going to continue a discussion with them unless they were going to be honest in Mark 11. Um, so Jesus has already fought with these guys a lot. Um, he had given the parable about the vineyard, if you'll remember, just before this. And the uh, Pharisees were uh, very unhappy with him because, well, he was talking about them. And they recognized that right out the gate. And then you have this other group, the Herodians, who get their name from Herod, um, who were a Jewish group who were in favor of the, the Herods, who were the ruling family over Israel at the time. We all know King Herod, Book of Acts, uh, King Herod at the time of uh, when Jesus was first born. This dynasty had been ruling over Judea for a long time. Um, they were not friends with the Pharisees in any way, shape, or form. Pharisees uh, and Herodians didn't normally get along. Um, because the, the Pharisees believed that uh, the Herods were a, a bunch of chumps, which was a fair assessment of the group. Um, but these two found uh, they had something very much in common, right? They had, okay, so you have the Pharisees on one hand who they're not happy with Jesus right now because he is undermining and usurping their authority, which they're not happy about because they've got, they've got themselves set up on a pedestal, right? They, they are the rulers and the teachers of Israel, 
and uh, they have their rules, they have their regulations, and Jesus is just coming up and just basically undermining everything that they, they had sought to set themselves up with. And then you have the Herodians, on the other hand, who thought that Herod should be, well, he was called the king of the Jews, and they wanted the Herods to continue to be the kings of the Jews. And Jesus shows up now, and he's the son of David, right? Uh, we talked about the blind beggar Bartimaeus. Is a son of David, meaning he's t set up to be king. Jesus is the king of the Jews, the rightful king of the Jews. And people are starting to recognize this now. And so the Herodians are now looking and they're saying, okay, this Jesus guy is undermining everything that we are trying to keep in place and keep set up. Um, Jesus is a better teacher than the, the Pharisees. He's a better king than the Herods. Um, and in this situation, now the, the two groups that would normally be like, cats and dogs fighting each other are, are now sitting in the situation where they're like, you hate Jesus. We hate Jesus. Let's get together and see if we can trap Jesus. Um, it's an enemy of my enemy is my friend is the, the proverb there. Not a biblical proverb, but just a standard one. Um, and their goal was to trap Jesus in his words like they had tried so many times before. Um, you think they would have learned at this point. Um, and so they start by, of course, laying it on pretty thick. They don't say anything untrue about Jesus, but uh, you can kind of smell the, the air in which they're trying to butter him up, kind of get him, get him primed and ready to go for this, uh, for this, this question here. They, they go up to him and they say, um, Teacher, we know you are true and you do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. You could just smell it. You could smell the hypocrisy, what they were trying to truly get at from there. Um, you, uh, who has an NASB here? That, both of you? Okay. Those are good translations. I have the ESV there. And when it, they ask about the, uh, the poll tax, they, it says poll tax there in, in yours, right? Um, every, most other translations have it listed as a, a tax to Caesar or poll tax. Um, I grabbed a quote from John Grasmick out of the, the Bible Knowledge Commentary, which if you don't have, I was already uh, talking about that this morning with Jim, uh, one of my personal favorites. Uh, Grasmick says, uh, taxes was a Latin loan word meaning census. It referred to the annual poll tax, which you guys have like really literally right there in your translation, uh, or head tax demanded by the Roman emperor from all the Jews since 86, when Judea became a Roman province. Um, and then he quotes Josephus there. The money went directly into the emperor's treasury. This tax was unpopular because it typified the Jews' subjection to Rome. Um, and so... The Jews weren't quite partial to this tax, obviously. They don't like their Roman oppressors. They want to be their own free people, their own free nation. Um, they don't want to be under the thumb of Caesar. And most of them didn't even want to be under the thumb of the Herods, uh, minus the Herodians here. But they, they, they bring this up because it, it was a tax that would go right into Caesar's treasury, right? So, okay, now they've posed the question. Jesus can have, do two things. They've set him up, they said, you are impartial, Jesus, and then they set him up with a no-win scenario. They say, do we pay this tax or do we, uh, do we not pay this tax? And uh, Jesus is now given maybe three different options there. He can, Jesus can say, okay, uh, yes, you're going to pay the tax. You should pay the tax to Caesar. Um, that would mean that Jesus has now deferred to the emperor, right? The Jews aren't going to like him very much. He was not going to seem like a Jewish messiah if he's if he's um, saying, oh yeah, give to the emperor, because the Jews are still expecting a conquering Messiah. So this is going to take the people and it's going to turn away, uh, turn them away from Jesus and back over to the Pharisees. Um, by deferring as well, it, this whole statement they set him up with there gives the implication that you favor no man, you, you don't um, give preference or anything to that. It's going to look like he's giving preference to Caesar now. And uh, when that happens... Um, it's going to make it seem like the things he says are not truthful, right? They say, you, you defer to no one, um, you are impartial, you, uh, you, are, you speak the truth of God. And so, 
by making that first part invalid, the second part now will be, by proxy seems to be coming or to become invalid. So now you've, he, he sees right through it. He set, they set him up. And then the other answer is not to, not to pay the taxes. That's an even worse scenario because when that happens, Rome's going to step in, say, this is an insurrection. Uh, we can't have civil disobedience happening in our empire, and they're going to kill him. They're going to crucify him. They're going to step in and crush the entire movement. Third option he has is to decline to answer, which, of course... If you've ever watched a political debate and somebody goes, eh, what about this particular thing? They can deflect the question or they can decline to answer, but they're going to seem like a really weak candidate because of it. They're going to seem foolish. They're going to seem unknowledgeable on a subject that's actually kind of important. Um, and it's going to, in this particular instance, it's going to prove to them that he's not the Messiah because he's weak. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He has to defer questions. So checkmate, right? Jesus has no good answers. He can either say, yes, no, I don't care to answer that question. He's not going to win. It's a lose, lose, lose scenario, right? Um, Jesus recognizes this. He goes, why, why do you put me to the test like this? He says, so he's stuck in this, this, this false dichotomy or trichotomy, whatever you want to do, where You've got three different options, and none of them seem very good, but a false dichotomy is the idea that there's only these three options, right? There's more than three ways to answer a question, though. Jesus can answer yes without putting himself in the situation, and that's what he's about to do. Um, first, he calls out the hypocrisy, right? The Pharisees want a Jewish Messiah, a Jewish king to be out of under Rome. The, the Herodians are like, hey, we really like the Herods for some reason. I don't know why. Um, they seem to be very baby murdery for there be a group of people to be um, voting for them. But actually, I didn't think about that ahead of time before I spoke. It actually seems to be something that happens a lot nowadays as well. Um, but these two groups don't get along. He's like... He, he sensed their hypocrisy, right? They come to him with a question that could be very genuine for them, um, right? Because the Jews could be like, hey, I don't know, like, religious-wise, whether this is something that I'm okay to do. Um, or the Herodians can be like, hey, can I defer on this? Is this something that politically makes a lot of sense if I want to be specifically... They can ask a lot of questions. A lot of people probably have asked this question, but it is hypocr eh, hypocritical right down to the very core of it. And so Jesus asks for a denarii, or a, um, which is a small silver coin. It was basically the only coin at the time that could be used uh, to pay taxes. So he's, does anybody have this on them? Somebody goes, ah, I got a coin, flicks it over to him. I don't know, maybe they just handed it to him. I have no <laughs> idea. And he holds up the coin, right? And he goes, whose head's on that? Caesar's, George Washington, I don't know. Not George Washington. Uh, Tony Evans had this to say. I would claim it as my own, but um, that would be wrong. Um, Tony Evans says in his commentary, he says, it's appropriate to give to Caesar, that is, to the government, what belongs to him. Uh, as Paul told the Romans, let everyone submit to the governing authorities, in Romans 13.1. When the government is functioning legitimately, it provides beneficial services to those living under its rule. So citizens rightly pay taxes to fund government services like police protection and adequate roads. Um, Jesus' point here is, look, you've got a coin that's literally printed with Caesar's head. You would not have money without Caesar. You wouldn't have roads without Caesar. I mean, we have a, a beautiful highway system, and during the, the, that doesn't happen without tax money. There's always construction going on out on the highways, it seems. Um, if uh, construction crews don't get money, who's going to stand out there and lean on their shovels? Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those things where if there is no money coming in, these services can't be rendered. So it's, and the Romans were people who greatly benefited from these large projects, right? You had the, the, the all roads lead to Rome thing. That was the case. They built these beautiful roadways. They, they, they had this common language. Um, the gospel itself would not have spread like it did if it wasn't for the infrastructure. It wouldn't have spread if it wasn't for the common language. It wouldn't have...
the, the gospel owes a lot of its debt to the, the government system that Rome had set in place in the, in the first place there. It was something where, and that couldn't have happened without, without tax funds. Jesus, um, all throughout the New Testament, we see situations where we are told to submit to our government, even in situations where we, um, it doesn't, even when uh, the Bible's writers were not in situations where it seemed like you would want to submit to the government in the first place. Um, if you all have Bibles, which I sure hope you do, um, I need somebody to read uh, that passage that Tony Evans quoted, Romans 13, 1, 6 through 7. Who has that? Or 1, Romans 13, 1, and then verses 6 and 7 in addition to that. Romans 13, verse 1, and verses 6 and 7. And then somebody else, if they could get 1 Peter 2, 13 through 14. Um, you've got Romans? you got Peter? All right, Jerry's got Peter. Who's got Romans? You can do Romans. Lay it on me. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Tax to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. That lays it out pretty plainly, and I'm pretty sure that Paul lifted this straight from Jesus there. Um, it's, it's important that we, we give our, our taxes to our government. Um, it's not something that there's really any, what's the term? There's, there's no doubt, there's no other way. We don't dodge taxes. It's not a Christ-like thing to do. Um, and then there was uh, uh, 1 Peter 2. Got that, Jerry? Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as those sent by him, for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who will be right. Now, those two passages, I think, are extremely important, if for no other reason uh, than the fact that, um, that Paul, who wrote the book of Romans, was put to death in 64 AD by the government. He was executed for being a Christian. Um, yet, throughout his whole life, he constantly told people, he said, hey, you need to be respecting those in authority. The first Peter verse, um, church history tells us that Peter was crucified upside down by the government. Um, these men who um, lived, their, lived their lives for Christ specifically told people to submit to the governing authorities. And they paid the ultimate price at the hands of the governing authorities. Um, so it's not a situation of whether or not um, you feel like you're being persecuted, because the Jews certainly felt persecuted by their government at the time. They felt squashed down. They felt oppressed. And yet Jesus still told them, said, hey, you still pay taxes to Caesar. And then at the very end of that, he also adds a little something else, just in case they were thinking for a second that, ah, We've got Jesus trapped now. Um, it says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God's. What things are, are God's? What things belong to God? Uh, anybody have just a wild, wild guess? Um, is, uh, yeah, everything. <laughs> All of it. God created everything. He owns everything. Um, Nothing should be withheld from God, whether it's um, our funds. We talked about generosity a couple of, it might have been a month or so ago. Um, we, talked about, um, we talked about giving of our time. Uh, every week we have a, or every, once a month we have our, our um, what's it called? Um, the communion? Not the communion, but the, um, Jeremy gets up between the, uh, contemporary songs and the hymns and he speaks and it's a like a ministry outreach like a devotion. yeah basically to that extent where we talk about um 
what God would have for us to do in serving others, serving the church, uh, serving our community. Uh, these things are, are things that we can give in such a way of our time, of our resources to God. Uh, give our lives, as a matter of fact, to God, as, as Peter and Paul ultimately did. Um, as Jesus, in submission to the Father, did himself. Um, if we are to be subject to our government, how much more so then should we be subject to God? Um, if somebody presses you on that, First uh, Chronicles 29.11, and I probably should just use my phone because it makes finding these verses a little bit easier. Or put a bookmark in my Bible. That would be a good idea. Or have a PowerPoint put together. Oh, look at that. Thank you. I was going to spend a lot longer trying to find that. It, 29.11 says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, indeed everything that is in the heavens and on the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over it all. There is nothing that God does not have charge over. So that would be the number one thing that we need to watch out for as we, we kind of come to the end of this passage here. It's just a little segment just tacked onto the end by Jesus, right, it seems. But it speaks volumes. Um, what do we do? We pay our taxes. Nothing is our own. Everything belongs to God, even our very lives. Um, there's a lot to pull from just a very short segment of verses. And guess what? It continues because we also have this next portion here with the Sadducees. Um, if you look on to verse 18 there, we're going to go from 18 to 27. Um, and Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us, if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Okay, now they're going to give the hypothetical. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to him, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham? and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So again, Jesus is approached by another group with another particular background who is now seeking once again to trap him in his words by giving him a really weird and goofy hypothetical. Yeah, Poor woman. yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, this practice here that he's referring to is known as levy rate marriage. Um, I grabbed this from GodAnswers.com, a fantastic resource. If you don't understand something, they'll make it real easy for you. So I get a lot of use out of it. Um, it says, a levy rate marriage is a, literally a marriage with a brother-in-law. The word levy rate, which has nothing to do with the tribe of Levi, comes from the Latin word levir meaning a husband's brother. In ancient times, if a man died without a child, it was common for the man's unmarried brother to marry the widow in order to produce an heir for the deceased. The widow would marry the brother-in-law, and the first son produced in that union was considered the legal descendant of her dead husband. So, okay. So now we've got a situation with seven brothers. Now that is hyperbole, if I've ever, ever heard of it, just to make it... Really silly, just in case. They could have done it with two brothers, right? That could have been nice and easy. You know, whose husband will she be? Maybe if they were feeling really particularly funky, they could give, like, three brothers. But no, they went full tilt, full bore, and just said, okay, this guy had seven brothers. This woman produced an heir with none of them, and then she passed away. Um, they want to trap Jesus. Um, so, what are the details here? We can look at this and say... Well, let's just try and figure this out together before we get to Jesus' part, right? Somebody comes up to you and asks you this. 
So here's the details. They, the woman has seven husbands. They are official, valid marriages. Right at the end of that, that passage there, uh, they say, for the seven had her as a wife. It is a valid, binding marriage. Um, there is no divorce between any of them. They just passed away. And none of them were, were given a chill, child through this woman. That is quite the situation to find yourself in. Um, and it's supposed to invalidate this idea that there is an afterlife or invalidate the idea of a resurrection. Because, I mean, they all get raised. Now you got eight people standing there. It's like, okay, I married this woman. And she goes, look, I was married to all of you. I don't, I don't know what to do with this situation here. Um, you know, which one could it be? And they go, checkmate. There is no afterlife. Because this is really weird and awkward. Yeah, I guess, okay. But Jesus snaps back. Again, he does not flinch for a moment, partially because he has a little extra knowledge that they were apparently not aware of before, and then he's also got the Bible, which he can use to, to retort their ideas as well. So he starts off, he says, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? Now, that is something really brutal to say to what are supposed to be the leading class of Jews. Like, these were the... We, okay, so you've got the Pharisees, you've got the scribes who were kind of down here, and then you've got the Pharisees who were the biggest class of them. And they were, you know, some of them were a little bit on the, the richer side. You know, you have, um, like, Joseph of Arimathea, you know. But for the most part, if you were in the really bougie class of Jews and you were, you were like top-notch as far as like wealth and stuff was concerned you were a part of the Sadducees um, which meant a number of different things one of them being um, and I, I wrote them down oh I did write them down good job Sam they were the one of the Jewish ruling groups right um, they were smaller than the Pharisees they were a, a substantially smaller group they tended to be wealthy and they were very secular is one of the big things that we know um, and Mark points to this, and, uh, and uh, if somebody wants to grab Acts 23, verse 6, um, we'll get to that in a second, Acts 23, 6, um, they had basically this small group of things they would follow. Um, they said, we will contain ourselves solely to the Pentateuch, that is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the five books of Moses. Um, your Psalms, just don't worry about it. Uh, Proverbs, don't worry about it. Um, Chronicles, Kings, whatever that is, get that out of here. Uh, judges, out of here. Joshua, you are on thin ice, mister. Um, the prophets, we don't worry about those. And so by eliminating the majority of the Old Testament, they were able to go, so, okay, we can, we can say this, that there is no afterlife that there is no resurrection from the dead. And they can say that basically, uh, no supernatural stuff. We don't believe in angels. We don't believe in any of this stuff. Um, we don't mess with these things. Um, these things just don't exist. Um, and to show how much so they did not like these things. Uh, who's got Acts 23, 6? 6 through 10, if you would. Oh. Okay. I gotcha. <laughs> okay, so it says, but perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. As he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And there occurred a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heedily, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. And as a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. So Paul escapes a uh, very bad situation by pitting two groups against each other. 
uh, the entire Sanhedrin, basically. Uh, one group says, hey, there is a, there's God, there's spirits, there's angels, there's all this stuff, right? Um, which you would get if you... Um, actually, no, you'd still get that from Genesis. There's angels in Genesis, right? But Jesus says, look, you don't know the scriptures, apparently, so that's why you say there is no... Um, there is no spirit, there is no angels, there is no resurrection. Um, if, you knew the, if you knew the word, you would understand these things. It says, also, in addition to that, are you not aware that the power of God is something that you neglected to take into uh, account here? Um, first of all, he says, um, that they misunderstood uh, the, what the afterlife was like. And this happens a lot, right? Uh, we've all seen, um, oh, that one Jimmy Stewart film. It's a wonderful life. There we go. Uh, where, uh, where they have, uh, what's his name, Clarence, who uh, was a guy who died, and, and then he became an angel, and that's, the, that's oh, it's just kind of how it works, right? Um, for a long time, people thought when you died, you became an angel. Um, there's always been misunderstandings about what an afterlife would be like what we're going to be like after we die, what heaven's going to be like. Um, these misunderstandings have persisted for a very long time, and they continue even to this day. And this is something that the, Pharise- or the Sadducees were doing. Um, and so Jesus takes a moment and just says, okay, look, here's how it actually is. If you, if you must know, um, marriage is important, frankly. Um, Uh, it is very important to God Um, he has a lot of regulation on it in the Bible Um, what it looks like what it um, how it is to be um, handled and then a lot to say on how you're to act inside of a marriage I mean he has chapters and and books on the on the subject could be written Um, it is very very important to God the union of a man and a woman. Jesus even talks to the Pharisees about this way earlier on, talking about giving a certificate of divorce. Um, God takes these things very seriously. What that doesn't mean is that marriage persists into heaven. Um, And we can see this through two different passages, right? In fact, we can even see it through their own question, right? At any rate, at any point, none of these men ever divorced their, that, that one woman, right? What did they do? They died. All seven of them. Um, they all died. And in doing so, that in, not invalidated the marriage, but that was from now until death do us part, right? That means at death, it's all done. It's over, right? It's like that guy who died in prison and then... Uh, went back to the court and said, uh, I serve my life sentence because um, they resuscitated him. You know, once it's done, it's, that's a real thing that happened, I promise. I saw it in the news. <laughs> this doesn't persist after death. Um, in 1 Corinthians 7.39, oh, you know what? Why don't we just look up these verses too while we're at it. Does somebody have 1 Corinthians 7.39? Do I hear a 1 Corinthians 7.39? Abigail, sold to the lady in the front. Uh, Romans 7, 1 through 3. Romans 7, 1 through 3. Jerry, you got it again? All righty. We're shown that marriage does not persist after death. At that point of death, there is no need for a certificate of divorce before you're going to remarry at all. Actually, I'm getting ahead of the... Go ahead, Hebs. Romans 7, what? Romans 7, 1 through 3. Go ahead. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. If there was something about marriage in the afterlife, this would probably be a good place to put that in. Um, but it would have actively conflicted with what Jesus had to say here, so I'm really glad he didn't. Otherwise, that would have been kind of problematic. Um, and Jerry? Do you not know, brethren? speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. 
But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning her husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she be joined to another man. And that's an illustration Paul uses to describe what it's like to be dead in Christ to sin. We die to sin, we die to the law, and we are raised with Christ. Um, we are no longer bound to sin and death. This is what it means to have a new life. Um, this is what it means to, to, um, to be saved, in a sense. But he uses marriage as an illustration here. If somebody gets married again after, after their spouse passes away, your first instinct is not to go, Hey, what's your wife going to think about that? Nobody's asking that question because that's not how it works. That's never been how it works, right? Instead, um, what it is is we go, good for you, or what's this person like? We don't question that because after that, that person dies, that, that law is now, or that, that, that covenant that you've made is now completed, in a sense, if you will. Um, and so Jesus makes this point and goes, it doesn't matter if she was married to one, two, three, four, five, six, seven different guys. They're dead now. The covenant has been completed. The, there is no more to be done there. Um, and when they are raised, they're going to be like the angels. That doesn't mean they're going to become an angel, right? That means that they're going to be like the angels in the sense that they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Um... Then he goes on to um, address, finally, the idea of there not being an afterlife at all. Not by taking, I could think of passages all over the joint in, in Psalms and in the, the prophets where they talk about um, being raised up from the dead. Um, but the, or the Sadducees did not listen to any of that stuff. And so what Jesus does instead is he takes a well-known passage from the Pentateuch, the books that the Sadducees I did respect, and then he says, look, even from the scriptures that you acknowledge, you are wrong. In fact, he says, you are quite wrong. Um, um, and he doesn't use any, any fancy, uh, any fancy mumbo-jumbo, right? He doesn't go, um, oh, yes, well, let me prove to you that the Old Testament prophets are true. Obviously, he believed in them. He quoted them constantly. He appealed to them as the source of his ministry. But in this particular instance, he doesn't try and prove anything. He takes what they already, they already acknowledge as true and says, even the scriptures that you take for truth go against what you're trying to say. He says, um, and that verse is, is in Exodus 3.6, um, where it goes, I am the God... Of, of, in fact, I'll even go there. When Moses is out in the wilderness of Midian um, before the Exodus, and uh, he's in exile because he can't return back to Egypt um, because of the murder he committed. And God finally gets a hold of him. Um, make sure I'm in the right spot. Three, one through six. Now Moses was leading the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame, fire, out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, and God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. He said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And we all know that the I am God is self-existent. He relies on no one. No one created God. He is the I am. But he also says that I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus appeals to this tense. He doesn't even argue for angels at this point, right? 
make a very clear case for angels, which the Sadducees also didn't believe in. But he just focuses in on the point and he says, look, God says he is the God of Abraham, like is the God of Isaac, is the God of Jacob, not I was. Even in God's wording in that particular instance, you know, the truth of the matter is revealed, right? There, there is an afterlife. If it, you know, these guys aren't completely gone. They are still in the presence of God. There's no soul sleep or anything like that. God is still the God of these people who passed away years and years and years ago. Hundreds of years ago. Thousands of years ago. Jesus doesn't quote the Psalms. He doesn't quote Isaiah. He doesn't argue for the case of there being a human spirit or like a spirit inside of people or, a, or an angel. He appeals to what the question was. He answers the question succinctly and then calls them out, um, which is crazy. Um, the Sadducees, some of the most high-ranking Sadducees were actually the high priests. Um, Caiaphas, his whole family, uh, the ones that were there during the trial of Jesus. Josephus goes out of his way to tell us that th that man was a Sadducee, not believing in a resurrection. Could you imagine being the high priest of God and not believing in angels or resurrections or spirits or any supernatural deed, only holding to the five books of Moses? That seems crazy, right? I had to go back and read it myself because I was like, this guy's got to be making a mistake. There is no way on this planet. It's true. That's what's, what's there. It's crazy. But Jesus takes them where they're at and he, go, he calls them out. Can you imagine calling out the high priest and saying, is this not why you are wrong? Because you know neither the power of God nor the scriptures? Whoa! The guts on this guy. Who does he think he is? The son of God? <laughs> um, God made the world. He made everything in it. He can raise people from the dead. That is not a problem for him. Um, and this is something that the Sadducees overlooked. Um, he tells them that they're, they're quite wrong. Jesus, is in these two passages, is put in a particularly weird place. Through addressing things wisely, though, and appealing to the Scriptures, he's able to answer these questions in such a way um, that, that people are, are not able to trap him in his words. They aren't able to make him say the things that they want him to say. They expect him to say something to trap himself. And he comes out t saying this wisdom that they're like, doggone it, it didn't work. Um, as, and I'm sure all of you have probably, it's happened to me, I'm sure it's happened to you where people have tried to trap you in your own words, right? There's been situations. Um, I, I had one guy who was working at a Starbucks and uh, this guy comes up to me and he, and uh, one of my coworkers goes out of his way to tell him, he's like, this, is a, this guy likes, goes to church and stuff. And I was like, yeah, that, I guess. That's a really weird way to put that. And this guy on the other side of the counter, basically, in the sense that he wants to entrap me, uh, goes, say you hate gay people, or say gay, gay, being gay is a sin. And I sat there, I'm like, why on earth would you just, I don't even know you, like, who? <laughs> And I, I looked at him and I said, you seem like you particularly want to be unhappy with the church and God. Why is that? And I don't think that was something that would have come out of me normally. I think I would have just clammed up and been really awkward. But the guy was, you know, confronted with the, the fact that he was just angry. He was upset. He wanted things to be a certain way that they weren't. And he, when confronted with that, he turned. He went a different direction. And he didn't push the issue any further. It was like, well, thank you, Lord, because I'm a moron who likes to stick his foot in his own mouth, so I'm not going to claim that that came from any sense of wisdom that I've got right. But Jesus is the source for this wisdom. If we ever find ourselves in these situations, we have the opportunity to, um, to, to um, rely on him. Jesus told the disciples, you're going to stand before kings, right? Um, you're going to stand before uh, emperors. Don't worry about what you're going to say. In those moments, I will give you the answer. That's a promise that he made to his disciples. 
I think that's something that we can depend on as well in the situations where we're called to be a witness for Christ. Um, to know the Bible, to have a response for the hope that is within us. Um, I would not recommend answering with, you are quite wrong, you are ignorant of the scriptures, and you know not the power of God. Um, but at the same time, we do need to understand the power of God when we find ourselves in situations um, where we are stressed, where we are freaking out. Um, God's power is beyond that of anything we can ask or think. Um, we also need to understand the word of God because when we find ourselves in these situations, um, that is the only way we're going to find ourselves being able to give an accurate response to understand what we actually believe, what God has actually said. Figure out where we are wrong in not understanding the scriptures, right? So, um, that being said, I actually don't know what time we wrap up. It's really quiet out there still. But I have run out of things to say. But I will take questions, comments, snide remarks. <laughs> Five whole minutes. Oh, boy. I just have one comment where he talks that he's the God of the living and not the God of the dead. That brings me so much joy with my family who is living with God. Mm -hmm. They are not gone. Exactly. In first Thess what was it? First Thessalonians, right? Chapter 3, where he, he talks about we don't mourn as those who don't have hope. Um, yeah, we mourn, but we have the understanding that this ain't the end of it. He's the God of the living. Mm-hmm. Exactly. They're better off than we are at this point. And it's, uh, it's a great blessing to all of those who have, have trusted in, in Jesus um, as, the, as, as God who, who died for our sins, who paid the penalty for our sins, that we, through trusting in his word, can have eternal life. Um, Book of John is just fantastic for that, and it, I'll make me tear up. Stop that. Okay. <laughs> any, any other comments, questions? Um, yes, sir. Well, this also answers the question of why we don't appoint new apostles mm -hmm. to the church because they are still alive. They are still in the church. The church is not an earthly institution. Jesus said his kingdom is not a Minus Judas. Well, he wasn't one of the original twelve. No, no. He was a faux prophet. He was a faux prophet. <laughs> Whereas those of us who don't know how to how to read French words, the fox apostle. Yeah. <laughs> but well, they didn't replace James after he died. They put James to death early in the book of Acts, and they don't all get together and go, okay, so uh, we're starting to run out of qualified guys. Uh, <laughs> Let's see here. Uh, they don't. They, and if you don't believe, you just go to Italy and you can see those twelve apostles sitting on top of, or standing on top of the cathedral. Yep. <laughs> uh, I in in my uh, research for this, I was a little curious as to what the the LDS interpretation of this passage was, and it was um, interesting to say the least. Uh, basically, the idea was that uh, you, I, I, Jesus was actually saying the exact opposite of what Jesus actually said, um, which is not a satisfying explanation in any way, shape, or form. But I thought that was an interesting response because this is definitely one of those passages where I read it and go, that doesn't leave a lot of room for eternal, eternal marriage, eternal families. This seems to be pretty cut and dry um, on on what, it, what it's talking about. And the, the point they were trying to make was that the Sadducees would not be having marriage in heaven. They're the only ones. Um, well, and that's kind of what I was thinking about when I was reading this. Um, I don't know if you God has, um, oh, okay, making sure. 
That, that's how I keep myself from spouting heresy is I keep an eye over here and if she <laughs> makes a face, then I go, oh, okay. <laughs> now, we, we have that promise in heaven. Um, our, our focus, if our focus is so much on, on those we've, we've lost or you, you hear it before where I don't think this would be heaven if this person wasn't here. Uh, I don't think it would be heaven if this wasn't the case. It just wouldn't be heaven to me. And that's a, a foolish interpretation of what heaven is like. It's not about us particularly. It's not a reward for us who have been so great and so faithful. It is an unmerited gift to us uh, to be in the presence of our Savior. Um, and it doesn't matter who else is there. It could be just us and Jesus. And you know what? That would still be enough. That would still be enough. Um, and, and just the book of Revelation just, just gives us, it's like, it's basically a whole book that's written to say, get over yourself. <laughs> it's not about you. None of this is about you. You are going to um, hit a point in your life where, um, where you're going to see the Lord face to face and you're going to fall down. You aren't going to be old buddy-buddy with Jesus. John knew Jesus probably better than anyone else, um, yet he sees Christ in his glory and he just becomes like a dead man and just right on the floor there. Um, it's, it's going to be so much greater than we could ever imagine. It's going to be very much different than we would ever think, but we can learn more about it through the study of God's word. There was a book that was talking about heaven. It was that I was in the men's was it the Tuesday morning Bible study? Which book was that? Was that a Randy Elkhorn book about heaven? Was that right? Just a phenomenal book that just kind of, if you're looking for a book about it, it'll take piece by piece and it'll give you, take the, what the Bible says and gives us a better picture of what heaven's actually life, like that sets aside all of our, our preconceived notions or our false understandings like the, the Sadducees had and gives us a fuller understanding of his phenomenal little book. Um, we are now at 10.30. We can take one more question or comment or take a snide remark. Joseph, if you're feeling one coming up. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you that um, your, your word is, is true, that you are impartial to any person. Um, thank you for the gift that is, that is to come. Um, that is heaven, something we don't deserve. Thank you for the gift of your salvation, which, which frees us from our sin, um, that breaks the chains of the law, that, that fulfills the covenant. Um, Lord, we, we thank you, and we are so, so very grateful to you for everything that we've been giving. It's in your name we pray. Amen.